Welcome to Not The Way I Planned. I'm Carly Cash, and if you've ever found yourself thinking, this is not the way I thought my life would turn out, you've come to the right place. Each week we'll have inspiring interviews, plus tips and tricks to living your best life, even if it's not the life you planned. My guest today is Dr. Tim Hollingshead, and we are going to tackle a topic that a lot of people are afraid to talk about. In fact, I can feel my palms getting sweaty <laughs> because this is something that it, it, people, they don't want to talk about it. They never think it's going to happen to their family. It's never going to happen in their relationship. We are going to talk about pornography and pornography addiction. So, Dr. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. And you've got a program called Free and 13 that's designed to stop pornography addiction before it starts. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, hi, Carly, and, and thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Uh, I, I want to just say how much I love what you're doing. Oh, thanks. And uh, just uh, so thrilled to be able to visit with you. Um, and and I think your reaction is common to a lot of people and uh, because this topic can be kind of awkward. Yes, uh, for sure. And, and I hope by the end of our little visit today, we can help a lot of people not feel so awkward about it. It's a good goal. So um, how did you become kind of passionate about this topic? <laughs> but yeah, it is a weird topic to be passionate about, isn't it? Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about my background. I'm a, I'm a reconstructive foot and ankle surgeon. I'm retired. Yeah. And I run a couple of companies that I built now. Um, the, uh, but I... Um, I have, and I've also taught um, physiology, biology, and anatomy at the university level. And for the last seven or ten years now, I've been involved with uh, ecclesiastical, kind of a lay ecclesiastical position, in counseling with um, this group of young people from uh, about eighteen to thirty. And uh, when. Uh, Early on, uh, it became evident that one of the biggest problems that they, a lot of these, um, we'll call them young single adults because that's what they were, yeah. uh, uh, came in and wanted to talk about, you know, get advice for direction or whatever it is. The predominant issue seemed to be pornography, and uh, which, which was kind of a shock, but at the same time, maybe not so shocking. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. Everyone knows it's an issue. They just don't want to tackle it or talk about it. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like a little secret we don't uh, we we don't want anybody to know about. Right. Um, and uh, and so you know early on, it, you know I I I sent a lot of people to counseling. I sent them to addiction recovery programs, and when they returned, um, they. They returned, and but within months or a certain period of time, they're they're sort of right back to where they started from. Hmm. And so I and I know the programs that I sent them to. I knew the I knew the therapists and the, the doctors and the and the programs, and I knew that they were well accredited. And but they were all addiction focused. Right, because I I've thought about it just like any other addiction. But is there something different there? A different component? Yeah, so as I started looking into it, that's a great question. So as I started looking into it, I, I came to the realization that 
we've got a lot of things about uh, what to do, you know, after first exposure, right? A lot of books for young people, um, some things to help them understand. And then we have a, a, just, a, you know, $40 billion industry of addiction recovery on the other end. Mm-hmm. And But there's this gap where there's nothing until now uh, dealing with, you know, what do you, how do you, what do you do if you get exposed and how do you manage those feelings and what is that, what do you do and, it, you know, uh, how, do, how does it go from, from curiosity to experimentation to habituation to compulsive behavior to addiction? Where are those lines? Exactly. And, and so, um, yeah, so I realized that there just wasn't a lot of great direction or, or just an overlap an overlooked gap, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I, given my background and understanding, I thought I could, I'll just look into this and, uh, you know, and try to figure out something. And so that's what I did. So how does Free and 13 work? How does it differ from a traditional rehab program? Addiction is a disease. It's a diagnosis. Yes. Requires somebody expert, trained to be able to make that diagnosis. We throw around the word addiction so cavalierly that the, that it's lost its true meaning and its true significance. I mean, we how many times a day do you hear someone say, "Well, I'm addicted to chocolate. I'm addicted to uh, my know, cell phone uh, or Diet Coke or whatever." Yeah, exactly. When when in reality, is it a technical addiction? Probably not. Uh, so early on, I started asking these individuals as they came into council to provide me uh, with some form of proof, I guess, from a doctor or a therapist or somebody mm-hmm. that said that they were addicted. And you know how many who brought that? How many? Zero. Really? I've counseled personally over hundreds of these young men and young women, and not a single one ever came in with proof. And they'd been to therapists, and they'd been to programs, and they'd been to psychologists. And, uh, but none of them had been really diagnosed as an addict. So I thought, oh, that is so curious that, that they're willing to self-diagnose, and yet they're probably not addicts. But so they that, know there's that, a problem. They know there's something wrong about the way of... What they're consuming, how they feel about themselves. There's an issue there, obviously. That is so true, and and I have to tell you, I frankly, I'm I'm humbled and amazed at the same time at the willingness of this this group of individuals who recognize that want to get out of it, yeah, and are willing to come and talk about it. Absolutely, I feel like I couldn't do it myself. I would be too nervous. It's too taboo i just would feel so embarrassed yeah and that's and that's kind of where a lot of people get stuck you know the shame part of it might as well talk about that element so there's a lot of shame built around this because they feel guilt about it which is okay guilt is drives us to change it's a recognition of something that we've done something counter to a core belief or what's right and but and shame on the other side is the judgment about it and what they what they they kind of we all kind of mix those two up and don't really understand how to peel them apart and deal with them properly. 
And so the first thing that we talk about when these come in is, is first, that we believe that they're not addicted, you know. Uh, and so that, I, I, let me tell you, when, when I started telling these individuals, first, that they were, we believed that I believed in their inherent goodness, and second, that I believed that they were not addicted, it was like taking a load off their shoulders. Yeah, that almost makes it easier to tackle. If I don't view myself as an addict, then I can conquer this. Yes, because as an addict, now I have a, I have a name, I have a disease, and I have something I will never get rid of. Yeah, and there's so much shame around that, just that word. I'm an addict. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you can go to all these programs and sit there and these, you know, Think about a, an 18-year-old going to a program where a group, you know, where you have 20 people sitting there and you've got 18-year-old sitting with 48-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 30-year-olds, and thinking, that's my life, what I am? I mean, how much hope is there? It's really debilitating. And so, we, so one of the things we set out to do is to triage very well these individuals because we recognize that uh, triage them in the sense of what's, uh, what causes the, their use of pornography. If they're not addicts, why are they going to it? Right. And so figuring out what the physical element of this, by the way, there's a physical, emotional, and a spiritual element. If, you know, I happen to believe in God. I believe in a higher power. People, some people don't. But there are in life what we consider to be enduring truths. You, you, they're just can't be denied. Right. They exist, and when we, when we uh, base our core values on those things, things work better. And so uh, understanding what the physical element of it, why, you know, what happens to, to you, when you, look at, uh, when you look at pornography, what happens, what's going on in your brain? Uh, how does that affect your emotion, and how does that affect how you see yourself or your spirituality? And so I began to peel that apart to try to understand each one of those elements. And uh, we, just, we just found some very interesting things. What we found was a trap. Uh, that pornography, in, in most cases, especially in this age group, in fact, we believe that most young men, young women, and young single adults, you know, so from the time that they are exposed, which is, the average age is around 11, but that age group is now getting pushed down to 10. Which is shocking. We hear, a lot of people, we hear a lot of these individuals getting exposed earlier in life. So we try to figure out, you know, what, what happens when, you know, they first see pornography and how it affects them and yes. how they get caught in the trap uh, and why pornography is a trap at this age group and not so much an addiction. And so the trap is this. They, they view pornography. It sets off a physiochemical uh, reaction in their brains, sort of a neurochemical uh, cocktail that kind of gets released, along with hormones, and it drives them to uh, act out. And what happens, so pornographers are super in tune. They understand their product extremely well. They're fantastic marketers. And so with the, the individual uh, unknowingly, unwittingly, will go back and use it and practice that to the point where it becomes uh, a, a coping mechanism. Right. It's, it's an escape, just like drugs or alcohol could be an escape. It's an escape. 
Yes, yes, and and uh, and and it's the practice. This is the interesting thing about this. It's it's the it's the frequency, the going back and practicing it, and it's so subjective from one person to the next. But as they go back and practice this, they deepen that neural pathway in their brain, so that now. When life gets difficult, for example, I'm frustrated, depressed, distracted, bored, yeah. I got something scary coming up, what do I do to control my feelings with? Oh, yeah, this thing that can give me a, a momentary uh, sense of pleasure. Makes perfect sense. And so they go and they, they drop back into pornography, act out, and the interesting thing about this is at, within moments, typically, but it could take long, a little bit longer, all of that stuff that they were trying to escape comes back and seems even more burdensome. Now, as you're talking, it seems very similar to me to someone that decides to take a couple shots of alcohol or experiment with drugs a little bit. It's the same want, wanting to escape. So why is it different than a drug or alcohol addiction? I'm still trying to completely grasp that. It's different in a lot of different ways. In a, in a lot of ways, I should say. One way is it can be hidden and nobody would ever know or see it. That's true. Yeah, there's not a, the same type of a consequence. Yeah. The other way is it actually deals with sexuality, sort of a taboo area of discussion. Yeah and one that a lot of parents aren't comfortable talking to their kids about. And, uh, and I'm, I'll tell you right now, uh, the Internet is where children are going to learn about sex, and that is not the right place to learn about it. So they're using pornography for sex education, which is not what it, what it should ever be used for. No. I will say um, it's, it's so shocking to me. I've got an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old, and when you say the average age of a child's first exposure to pornography is 11, I, I'm dumbfounded because I just feel like, no, not my kids. That's not, uh, no way. And I think most parents feel that way. Yes, yes. That's a, I'm so glad you said that because that's also part of the shame element. And a lot of, you know, this is how I'm going to dram, dr- dramatize sort of a... <laughs> What, what could happen, right? So uh, a young person might feel like that they're stuck in this trap, right? They're seeing pornography. They want to get out of it. By the way, most of them, most of them, almost all of them, every single one of them, I'll tell you this, has come to talk to me, has said, hey, I don't want to look at this. But in the morning when I wake up, I don't think, yay, hey, here's another day I get to look at porn and act out. It's, oh, my goodness, I hope this doesn't happen today. Right. And with that first exposure, is it usually just accidental? Or are they seeking oh. it out? Yeah, accidental. It's it's no longer uh, an issue of if, it's when. And uh, most children do not seek this stuff out. Yeah. But, you know, but it comes up accidentally. And, well, and, and, and here's an interesting thing, too. And, and why does it trap them? With boys especially early, earlier than girls. And here's why. One of the reasons, main reasons, is because of the jump in uh, the hormone testosterone at the age of, you know, around 10, 11, 12. It jumps from, from being even or level with girls by about 20% more in boys. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, the natural curiosity now is peaked. And, and now when they look, if they were exposed to it earlier, and, you know, probably didn't ex- excite them or, or create a, 
sexual arousal, but it might have been uh, something that they remembered because it was so shocking and different. So now when they get exposed a little bit older and they've got enough hormones driving around their system, now it can be meaningful and drives them to act out. And, of course, that, again, builds that shame thing. And so... Uh, and then when they try to go talk to their parents about it, you know, it might it, it might go down something like this. You know, a young young we'll just say a young man wants to talk to his parents. You know, let's say it's a 15 year old, 16 year old recognizes he's got a problem. He doesn't know how to kick it, uh, get out of the trap. And so he calls his mom and dad and says, "Mom, Dad, I I want to talk to you." And mom and dad are so excited that their 15 year old wants to talk that they get excited and they think, oh, good, he's going to tell us about his, his college aspirations or his yeah. vocational direction or, you know, maybe he, he wants to do something with his life. We're going to find out. And look, he doesn't have his phone with him. This is so exciting. Uh, and, and so they sit down and, and then the, the, the young man says, uh, Mom, Dad, I, 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 I didn't mean to do this, but I've been viewing pornography and I don't know how to get out. You know, the dad falls over. Yeah, it's like, like oh. And the mom is screaming, oh, how could you do this to me? Where's, why don't you love me enough? How come, why would you ever go see this? Are you a pervert? I need to call a therapist. Let's call her ecclesiastical leader. Yes. And off they go. Now, I'm dramatizing that. I don't want to offend your moms out there. It's just a, a way to kind of uh, explain sort of how a natural reaction or overreaction can create a level of shame that just deepens this downward spiral. You know, one thing I was thinking about that young exposure is that it can come in forms that we don't often expect. For example, I remember being a very young girl, probably around 11, and my aunt gave me all of her Cosmopolitan magazines. And I think she was very naive about this. And I was curious. I was 11, so I was just curious about my sexuality, which I think is really natural, and I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about it. That was way taboo in our house. So I started consuming these magazines and it wasn't the most obvious form of pornography, but it got me curious and it got me thinking about things that maybe I shouldn't have been thinking about at that age. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. Um, so that you bring up a great point. The, the awkward talk about sexuality. Um, and, and frankly, uh, so your generation is raising the kids, the children, who are growing up not knowing anything else but the Internet. Correct. There, there are magazines so much anymore. Right. You're, you're, of, you're of the age group where you remember before the Internet, but now our, your kids, my grandchildren, they don't know anything but the Internet. And accessibility is just too easy. And it doesn't matter how many apps or protection devices you put on your phone, and I encourage all of that. We still can't control their friends' phones or True. True. access to a parent's computer or something else, you know. And these kids are brilliant. They know, they can If they find something, they know how to, sooner or later, they know how to get around it. Right. And, um and th- so that's that's part of the problem there, right? And so uh, having that talk, I think, is now more important than it has ever been. And and we need to talk in terms of if they've seen pornography, how did it make you feel? 
Understand how to talk to your child about the difference between attraction and arousal. It's a big difference. The, yeah. media, the media confuses the two and, create, and actually puts one before the other. So true. And I think and, parents and, have got to be willing to tackle those tough questions to avoid this problem because it's so it, there shouldn't be shame around that curiosity at that young age. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've been, we, you know, as human beings, we've been given a most uniquely powerful brain uh, that not, not only houses a, a primitive reward center, which is, which is really important for all of the, you know, the, the life skills and, and, and driving survival instincts and all that kind of stuff. But on top of that, We've been given this incredible superpower, which is our forebrain, the prefrontal cortex, which actually houses the, uh, the executive function or the capacity to override, if you will, the reward center of your brain. Right. And so this reward center is there to help us remember that we've got to eat, we've got to sleep, and we've got to reproduce. And it gets hijacked by pornography. In fact, with the Internet... We have an, uh, uh, just an unending source of novelty when it comes to this, these, these the, the, the depictions of physical intimacy, which is not intimacy at all. In fact, and the experts all prove this out, the difference, I mean, pornography is not love and love is not pornography. Yes. Pornography is dehumanizing, it's desensitizing, it's degrading. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't support any of the things that love is, which is, which is caring and affection and charity and, you know, all these qualities that drive an interpersonal relationship. The pornography doesn't do any of that. In fact, it's the counterfeit to love. And that's where it gets really confusing. And so when our kids are going to, and our grandchildren are going to the Internet to get sex education, and we think, you know, here's the other gap I want to talk about, and that's the gap of uh, sort of a generational gap of understanding of, of pornography, what's available. They are seeing things that we could never imagine are is out there sure. or is available. Yes. Yeah. In fact, here's a really scary thing to think about. There are over 1,600 free gaming titles that are pornographic. Oh, oh and in fact, on the Internet... You could, within three clicks of a certain benign search, and I won't even tell you the words because they are so common and, and so benign that if you go look, you'll find this, but within three clicks, you're into pornography. Pornographers are targeting our children. Right. That is the next frontier. You know, a couple thoughts come to my mind. First off, how do you tackle, I want my kids to feel like, Sex is okay. It doesn't have to be a dirty thing. So how do you separate in having a conversation with them that it's it's a, a good thing, it's a healthy thing, it's part of life, it's part of love, and then, oh, but don't view this because it's starkly different and it's pornography? Ah, great question. Great question. So that goes back to kind of what we are talking about what we've been given, right, as human beings. We have this reward center, we've got this brain, we've got all these great things that allow us to do stuff in this existence, um, and one of them is developing interpersonal relationships. Yeah. And so I think it's important to talk about 
what that looks like, you know, what that feels like. Sure. Uh, in terms that, that are age-appropriate, of course, and in ways that allow a child or a young adult to begin to differentiate without having to explore the difference between love and pornography. That's really what we're talking about. Yeah. And so, you know, understanding, again, the difference between arousal and attraction, uh, understanding what love is what, and, and how porn is, pornography is a counterfeit to that, and then talking to your child about, you know, what those differences look like and what is normal. So, you know, and not, not, I'm not going to tell people what, what their normal is. Their experience might be different than mine, but here's a general understanding. That is, in a real interpersonal relationship, the feelings and the rewards that are neurochemically based and emotionally based create bonding, are short-lived, and bring people together. It's consensual, it's caring, and it's respectful. I still get confused, though. For example, I took my kids to... Uh, an art gallery in New York City, and there was the European statues and all of that. And my little girl says, "Oh no, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to look at that." And I was, I mean, in one sense, I was proud of her that she didn't want to look at it. But in another sense, I was like, "Well, this isn't really pornography." I guess in my mind, it wasn't pornography. So, do, do you think it's okay for young kids to view something that's artistic like that, or is what are your thoughts on that? So, um, yeah, again, dialogue, conversation, um, core values, yeah. uh, you know, pornography, you know, what is pornography? You're asking me to, to define the pornography. One good definition of pornography is, is that which arouse, that which is uh, uh, intended to arouse someone. Okay, okay, yeah, that help, that's very helpful. Because sometimes I just don't know where the line is and you know I I don't know I'm not like the most reserved mom I want to have those conversations I want them to you know view some of those things and be I'm okay with it because it's art in my mind but I think like oh am I putting this in their face and is it going to lead them down this dark road you know well, you're a mature adult. Your brain has made all the connections, so you can you can uh, rationalize and, and and understand things in a different context. Right. Uh, and uh, and frankly, some things may not be age appropriate yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it might be confusing, and that's why you have to have that discussion. You know, if you're going to go to an art gallery, and you know, you know, in an art gallery, you're going to see that stuff. You, you need to prep your children and say, you know what, we're going to an art gallery today. You might see some statues that don't have clothes on them. Yeah. And if questions about what that is, I want to talk to you about that. Sure. And I think it's respecting, you know, when my daughter says, I don't want to look at that. Okay, let's go in a different direction because you absolutely do not need to look at anything that makes you uncomfortable. Right. And I think you're hitting on something that's really important, and that is subjectivity. If your child is uncomfortable, don't push them absolutely. in that regard. Yeah. Because they may just not be age appropriate. Uh, uh, I mean, not age appropriate. They may just not be at the age of understanding or wanting to understand that yet. Yet. Exactly. Exactly. So we've tackled pornography and its effect on kids a lot, but I wanted to get into the effects of pornography on a relationship or a marriage. 
And one thing I really want to tackle is we always think, okay, this is a, a man's problem. How often do you see this as a problem with women? Thanks for asking that. It's a growing problem with women. 70% of statistics show that about 70% of men are all involved in pornography in one form or another. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing a, a, a 30% with women, and that's the number that's growing, and that's the other field, that's the other area of growth for the pornography industry. See, what's happening is that, especially when the young single adult area, these, these young gals are going to pornography to see what's going to be expected of them. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great point. How horrible is that? I know, but they don't. They're, they're they don't know. They, they, they. I think a lot of times women are. I mean, we we seek that acceptance maybe even a little bit more than men. We want to, you know, love me, love me, love me. So it can get confusing. I think women think if I look like this or I act like this, that's going to be what keeps the guy around. Yeah. So here's here's. By the way, I love that. It's and 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 I get it. These young gals. I've raised daughters, and I've talked to a lot of these these gals as well. And, you know, when they're thinking, love me, love me, love me, they should also be thinking, don't porn me, porn me, porn me. Right, right. (laughs) That might be a little strong, but, you know, I I think that's the difference we've got to make, right? So here's the thing about pornography that I think we all sort of understand, but our young people may not, and that is it's as fake as it can be because you have actors Lights, cameras, direction, scripts, surgery, drugs, makeup, all that, to and editing to produce something that looks real but is so fake that it could never be real. Right. That makes sense. It does make sense, and I think another you know thing that is very damaging to women in particular, um, just. I mean, it goes back to even, like, just the stuff we view in magazines. I think women see women in pornography, and it's that instant, I don't look like that. I'm not, you know, I wish that I looked like that, or maybe that's what my husband wants me to look like. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it just adds to that whole body shaming yes, and uh, absolutely. Uh, problem. And, and, and so it, it, it's really more, it's sort of a compound and complicated problem because, uh, you know, our, 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 our gals are going, our young girls and girls and women are going to there to find justification or to find an expectation that we should not be living up to. Uh, I, I think they need to understand that they are the way they are, it, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, and, uh, and frankly, the expectation as presented on pornography should never be part of a relationship. It would be like saying this. I'm going to marry a guy who is just like James Bond. Yeah. Right? Right. Well, how many James Bonds are there out there in the world? Uh, not many. Yeah, because it's a fictional character. Right. And they cut and splice that stuff, and it's so choreographed and protected, and they make it look like it's real. It doesn't exist. Exactly. You know, one thing that I think is so important, I, I've been through a divorce, so I feel like I've learned a few things from being in that long-term relationship. And one thing that we were really bad about was communicating our needs in the bedroom. You know, I, I felt, I felt, I don't know, a lot of shame, I guess, in, in wanting that 
I felt like as a woman, I wasn't supposed to. I was supposed to say, no, not tonight, honey, I have a headache. And so I wouldn't really communicate that, but I was suffering inside. And I think there were things that he wasn't communicating with me. And I wonder how many times that can lead couples down this road as well. Yeah, yes. And that's one of the reasons we are so adamant about teaching those who come in and want to get her out of this problem uh, to not to get out of it and not to take it into a, a relationship or a marriage because uh, those expectations just just explode. Yeah, um, right. And just destroy relationships. And um, uh, that dialogue, you know, and, you know, what, I mean, you bring up a good thing, a good point, you know, what if you get married and you find out that he has a problem or she has a, a problem? Yeah, what, you know, do, you what do? do you do? Well, it, that's where you got to open up that dialogue, and that's where I would recommend getting a good therapist or psychologist involved. And finding in 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 understanding the root causes, how it's how it's used, and then finding the pathway away from it. Yeah, and I think with women in particular, it would. If I was to find out that my partner had a pornography addiction, my instant reaction would be, "I'm not good enough," so that's why he's going there, and that's not necessarily true. I would assume. That is so. Uh, you're so right on that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of betrayal trauma issues that are involved, and we're not good at that, and I'm just going to be forthright on that because I don't deal with that part of it. But you're right. Um, and, and most times the pornography use has nothing to do with the relationship and, 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 the, and how the wife looks or whatever, or the husband. Yeah. Sometimes it goes beyond that, and it does become that. But early on... Um, it, it, they're pretty good at, at keeping it separate. And that's why it's got to come out because eventually that that's what blows up. Sure. You know, one thing that you mentioned on your Instagram page that was interesting to me was you said constant self-criticism actually lessens your motivation and worsens your self-control. So explain how that shame over this issue actually can just make it worse. That's a great point. So one of the things that's really interesting, and, when, and uh, we'll actually put it in, in terms of guilt because that's where it starts first, and then it goes to shame. Right. But a lot of people believe erroneously that, that guilt drives change. Um, yeah. Guilt sometimes, uh, guilt often doesn't drive change, and neither does shame. What happens is that uh, guilt uh, will drive increase self-indulgence or increase acting out. Um, it's self-compassion that actually allows a person to begin to recognize and change. Uh, a lot of us think that if we're not hitting something spot on, right, we set a goal, or for example, if you have an issue with pornography, and the trap is such that it becomes cyclical, So, and you can practically track it on a calendar, you know, it's every two days or three days or every week or whatever the frequency might be. Each time an individual who wants to get out of that trap, each time they act out, they often say to themselves, Dan, that's the last time. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to try harder. Yes. I'm going to be more strict to myself. You know, I'm, I'm, and then they start with degrading themselves as being bad, and, 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 uh, uh, and that just adds to this downward spiral. 
And if they change that to uh, uh, a little uh, exercising self-compassion, in other words, recognizing, well, how did I get here? Right. And it's huge. Uh, what can I do not to get here? Right. Mm-hmm. Is more is more productive than just driving that guilt hammer, you know, h- harder and harder. Yeah. It, it, I know that I've also often had the mindset with different things in my life where I've felt, you know what, I already messed up. So since I'm a screw up, I might as well con- continue this behavior because I'm a screw up. Yeah, and that that's part of the that's part of the trap, right? It's the justifications to act out. Yes. So it's it's not owning the it's not owning the 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 behavior. It's justifying it. Some people think, well, I'm recognizing that I have a problem. Yes, that's right, true. But you continue to act out. Well, okay, yeah, all right. So you know, let's deal with why that happens. Why are you using pornography? See, a lot of people think pornography is the problem. When pornography is a problem and it's more of a tool that they're using to solve other problems in their life. Or even, yeah, a symptom of other issues that are going on there. Exactly. And understanding where that all comes from. For example, I, I had, um, uh, I've got to be careful because I don't have permission to talk about these things in specific detail, so I'm going to sort of um, put a few things together for, as an illustration. An individual came in, uh, wanted to get out of this trap, recognizing the, the cyclical nature of it, the frustration of being caught in it, and, and just, you know, that conflict in his soul and his heart about what he believed in and why he couldn't get out, and just coming back to his behavior, didn't want to do it. And um, as we got into all those things about his life and why he was using it, and then, by the way, this took several weeks to sort of sort out. Um, actually, it took well over a month. Uh, it came down to the realization that they finally shared something that they had not shared initially, which was they'd had a terribly, a mostly traumatic event in their life. Hmm. And it was shortly after that that this behavior began. Yeah. And so by going back and looking at it and understanding, okay, let's talk about that particular event and why it never got resolved, why you don't feel like that's never been resolved. But once we took about, about, talked about that and got that in the open, that individual got on course with this and was done in 13 weeks. Yeah, life-changing. I didn't recognize that I had developed PTSD due to some traumatic events in my childhood, and it was amazing once I finally tackled those root issues how it just affected so many different aspects of my life from I, I, you know, I myself have had weird little addictions or, or behaviors that I think were coping mechanisms from dealing with that trauma or the way that I viewed myself, my relationships, all of that got so much better once those root issues were dealt with. Isn't that remarkable? See, that's what we talk about triaging. Yeah. You know, it's important to understand what the root cause is. And from there, the program can be uh, applied. Now, a lot of people don't have anything that's traumatic. A lot of people just have boredom or, you know, they got exposed and they... Sure, and, so it's not it, always an issue. Yeah, it just became a, a habitual thing and, and they just get stuck. Because, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's not quite as problematic as far as 
understanding root causes, but but still, there's a root cause to all of this. So, in the end here, what would you say, A, to the parent that discovers their child has at least been exposed or maybe even has a problem, and what would you say to the person that's in a relationship with someone that has an issue with pornography? Just take a breath. <laughs> yeah. And recognize it's going to be okay. Uh, you know, you, you, when you get when you deal with this in a certain window, and I'm saying, you know, up to about 30 or so, um, there's so much hope and so much ability to change and get out of the trap. It, it again, it's a, this is this overlooked gap that we've been given people the ticket to addiction therapy for years. Uh, but just take a breath, relax, understand that there's help. I, in this book, I wrote the book so that because a couple of reasons. One, the the information was just spread all over the place, you know, and it was hard. You know, and I get it that it's hard to understand what's what works, what doesn't work, and so I I brought all this information in under one cover of a book, so that it would be understandable, so parents could have a guide. You know, they say, they say, you know, as a parent, I wish I had a manual. Well, here's your manual. Yeah, uh, this is it for this topic. <laughs> exactly, and uh, and so I brought this all together so that parents could understand this. So a participant, an individual who's stuck in the trap, could understand what's happening to me. Why can't I overcome this? Why, you know, a lot of people think it's a moral issue or it's a self-control issue or it's a spiritual issue. Well, it's none of those independently, but it's all of them collectively. Right. And so by bringing this all together, and, and by the way, this took seven years of, of research and testing and proving out and, and having success to get to the point where I could write this book. And, and, and it's written in a stepwise fashion that if you follow it this way, it, 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 it's, it, 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 it gets them out of the trap. You know, it's, it's a how-to and there's contingencies for what if I get stuck at a certain spot? Well, here's how you do it. And and there's a mentor manual, which is scripted so that um, if the child, if, the, if a parent who has a child, but you know, 18 years or under, who's, who they find out is in this issue and they want help, they can they can actually go to a trusted person. We te- we teach them how to vet a, a mentor. They can use an ecclesiastical leader in a, in a, you know, in some cases, very rarely would I, would I recommend a parent being the mentor. But they can find somebody who could act as his mentor. They can use the mentor manual. It's scripted so that they walk them right through the whole process. And, of course, we're here to support if somebody has a question. But, but it gets them through a stepwise fashion, and you cannot cheat the process. It's a process that requires going from one point to the next point to the next point. And it is it is transformational. I, I just cannot explain to you in adequate terms the change in how the individual looks and acts from first time sitting across the table from me with those dead eyes and and the want to, to be free of this craving to when they are through this and they have bright and they and they just shine, and their eyes are bright, and they and they and they have the love of life back again. They're animated. They have ambition, and it's they have control and confidence. It is it is it is a transformational event, 
and it, and as much as we would love to have a, a switch that we could flip, and it's always going to be reliable and always be instant, this takes time. And yet, still and, you're saying 13 weeks, which seems doable and, and sounds very hopeful for someone that's stuck in this battle. I feel like if this was my situation, I could tackle that. Yes, yeah, and, and, and 13 weeks isn't an arbitrary number. Let me tell you why it's 13 weeks. It takes 13 weeks from the last time you view pornography and act out to get to the point where your body restores homeostasis. In other words, when you're stuck in the trap and you're in this cycle, you're viewing pornography and acting out, you teach your body an abnormal sexual cycle, expectations of feeling a certain way based on certain behaviors, mm-hmm. and it's abnormal. And uh, by walking through this program, you get to the point where uh, all that, the neurochemicals and the hormones can get back to normal or homeostasis, normal levels or homeostasis, and again, restore not only how they should be feeling, right, uh, confident and having control yeah. versus being, being a, a slave to a craving, uh, and then, and, and that's what really releases them. And so that 13 weeks yeah, is meaningful. And uh, some people, you know, not everybody who starts the program and, and ends the program will do it in 13 weeks because a lot of people will kind of clunk around in that first several weeks, maybe months, sure. until they finally get serious about stopping the cycle. Breaking the cycle is the main thing in the beginning. And then being patient through the process and following the mentor and getting out. Yeah. So how can people find Free in 13? How can they access this? That's a great question. So uh, what you'll notice is that Free in 13 are books. And that might seem a little old-fashioned, but let me explain why they're books. Um, they, uh, because uh, there's a lot of great science that supports connecting to real things by using books, reading on a page, writing with your hand, uh, with, with ink and paper or pencil and paper, and then following through. And so this is in book form, and we have a journal as well that follows, that helps the individual follow uh, positive in the key indicators uh, as they progress out of the trap. Uh, and these, uh, and so it's not just an app. It's not something you can get online and kind of click through real quick. It takes a little bit of time. Uh, but it's but it's meaningful and it really works. So you can go to our website at freein13 f r e e i n one three dot com. You can uh, and all the information is there. You can go. We're on Instagram and Facebook, um, uh, and uh, we have a. You can call the office at four three five six seven four one nine zero four. Uh, those are the best ways to contact us. You can email us uh, uh, off the website. There are emails. You can go to, to um, uh, info at freein13.com and email us. Um, those, those are the best ways. Dr. Tim, thank you so much for just being willing to tackle this typically taboo topic. I think that there are so many people that think, I never thought this was going to happen to my family. I never thought this was going to happen to my relationship, but it is. And I think that we've got to start talking about it. We've got to get rid of the shame around it and and giving people hope that they can overcome this issue. So thank you so much for being willing to 
come forth with this information and share it because I think it is so needed in our society. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, one of the, I want everybody to understand, especially in this age group, that there is hope. You can preempt a progression towards addiction, and there are things that you can do uh, to leverage this back into your control. And the only way that we will win this war against pornography is going to be one by one taking back our loved ones and um, taking back ourselves. So thank you very much, and thanks for what you're doing. Thank you for joining this edition of Not The Way I Planned. If you liked what you heard, you can find more at notthewayiplanned.com as well as Not The Way I Planned on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.